Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation. Blues, 20th century blues, they're getting me down. Who's escaped those weary 20th century blues? The podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and my guest again today is Oliver Soden, the author of Masquerade, The Lives of Noel Coward. In this strange illusion, chaos and confusion, people seem to lose their way. What is there to strive for, love or keep alive for? Say, hey, hey, call it a day. Lose nothing to win or to lose. It's getting me down. Who's escaped those weary 20th century On today's episode, Oliver and I will follow Noel Coward during an incredibly productive period of his life from the late 1930s and through the Second World War. This is the fourth part of our conversation, so if you missed the previous three episodes, you may want to catch up with those before listening to this one. As always, Broadway Nation is made possible in part through the generous support of our patron club members. At the end of the episode, I'll have information about how you too can become a patron of Broadway Nation. Here we go. Let's talk about Design for Living. I think one of his most important plays, not done quite as often as perhaps it should be. In fact, a new edition of Coward's work came out this year and they asked me, which play would you most like to introduce? And I said Design for Living because it was about, it is about a bisexual love triangle played by the Lance and by Coward. So explicitly do the two men have an evidently sexual, physical affection for one another while having a very genuine sexual love for the woman that the Lord Chamberlain in England simply would not allow it to be staged when it was first written. It wasn't done in England for another six years. And it was done in America, where it was a a huge success. 
it's a wonderful play because it contrasts different designs for living. It shows Coward is a great chronicler of women and design for living shows first and foremost a young woman trying all the different options available to her in the 1930s in England and in Paris and in America as a married woman living a conventional life, as a woman living in a menage a trois, living an unconventional life. And the interesting thing about the play is it doesn't quite do what you would expect. It doesn't necessarily proffer this trio, this free-living, laughing trio, as a happy bohemian example of the right way to live, putting two fingers up to Victorian convention. It contrasts all these different ways of doing it in twos or threes, married, unmarried, as a mother, not as a mother, earning your own living, all of these ways, and shows them all in a way equally flawed. The bohemianism of the trio leaves them almost as unhappy. This is Coward's bleakness coming out as any more conventional option might have done. So it's not simply the triumph of bohemianism over convention. It's more nuanced, more profound. It's about three people who laugh at everything. That is their philosophy as it was Coward's philosophy, and who end the play laughing. But they laugh with a sort of painful, unending hysteria, because their tragedy may be the funniest joke of all. And I think really the female character in it, Gilda, is an inheritor not so much of Coward's earlier women, but of characters in Ibsen, who leave their husbands and slam the door, but, you know, don't necessarily have all that many options available to them. It's a fascinating play. I, I love it. And even though it's not saying bohemianism is superior to conventional society, it is conversely saying that conventional society is just as flawed as bohemianism. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Conventional society comes in the person of a character called Ernest, whom Gilda eventually lives with and marries. Ernest that's an undeniable nod to Oscar Wilde and the importance of being earnest and Coward's philosophy that actually being earnest isn't important at all. It's complicated, I think. So in spite of these, in many ways, very radical plays that he's writing, he starts to acquire a very conservative reputation. Yes, he has money to earn. And at the same time as all these radical plays of the 30s, Designed for Living, a wonderful play also for the Lunts called Point Verlaine, which is sort of proto-Tennessee Williams, and Tonight at 8.30. He's also filling West End theatres with fluffy musicals and operettas, conversation piece. Operette is the title of one of them. I mean, they're quite successful. They're quite well-reviewed, but they're hardly avant-garde. His reputation changes into, you know, not the shocking young man who wrote The Vortex, but someone who wants to earn a quick buck with some sort of frothy entertainment. And as you say, at this moment, he was most famous for Cavalcade and Bittersweet. Yes, in a way. If you think that no English audience had seen Hay Fever since 1925, and none of them had seen Design for Living, and by the outbreak of the Second World War, Private Lives is nine years old and hasn't been revived, the idea of coward then is not the idea of coward that we have now. And it's the fluffy musicals that have gone away and the plays that have lasted. If I had the proverbial time machine and could go back in time and see any coward production, I would choose Tonight at 8.30. Ladies and gentlemen, with your very kind indulgence, my wife and myself will present to you our famous nautical extravaganza. Thank you, Bert. That's right. Yes. All nine plays. Yeah. Be fascinating to see them. Right! 
What's to be done with a drunken sailor? So the saying goes. We're not tight, but we're not too bright. Great Scott, I don't suppose. We lost our way and we lost our pay and to make the thing complete. We've been and gone and lost the blooming fleet. Has anybody seen our ship? The HMS Peculiar. We've been on shore for a month or more. When we see the captain, we should get what for? Heave, how my heart is. Sing glory, hallelujah. A lady bold as she could be. Pinched our whistles at the golden key. Now we're in between the devil and the deep blue sea. Has anybody seen our ship Because it's just so hard to understand what the effect of them really was. It was such a stunt. And then each of those plays is so interesting. And we've seen versions of them. We A lot of them have been filmed. Yep. But I just don't think there's anything that quite captures what they were really about. No, or or the sheer physical feat. You know, Card and Gertrude Lawrence were performing nine one-act plays, the nine grouped in trios across three evenings. With matinees as well, Lawrence was filming during the day. I mean, there's a sheer level of energy and stamina. And in fact, it gave out when it went to Broadway and Coward had another major nervous breakdown. But what I would love to have seen was the first performance of one of the one-act plays, which is called Shadow Play, which I think is the most radical and experimental thing Coward ever did. It's about the breakdown of a relationship of a couple who have just been out to the theatre and the woman takes a sleeping pill and the play is essentially her fever dream. It splices is their, as it were, realistic conversation with memories of the play. They shift into song, they shift into dance. They're conscious on occasion that they're in a play. The staging was done under sort of harsh pools of white light with shadows, silhouettes thrown up on a backcloth. I mean, those who condemn Coward as a rather tedious, realistic playwright should look at Shadow Play to see him at his most expressionist, most theatrically daring, and most, I mean, this is an ahistoric term, but postmodern in the sense of his writing having a consciousness of its own theatricality. Sometimes you think in shadow play that the actors have forgotten their lines and they comment to one another as actors. They say things such as, you're skipping again. It's a melee of the real and the dream and the imagined and the musical and the dance numbers. Are you engaged for this dance? I was. But I'll cut it if you promise to love me always and never let anything or anybody come between us, ever. But of course that's understood. I saw you in the ballroom. I wondered who you were. My name's Victoria, Victoria Martin. Mine, Simon Gayfall. How do you do? Quite well, thank you. I suppose you came down from London for the dance? I'm staying with the Bursbys. What do you do? I'm in a bank. High up in a bank? Or just sitting in a little cage, totting up things? Quite high up, really. It's a very good bank. I'm so glad. How lovely you are. No, 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 that came later. You're skipping. I'm so sorry. You're nice and thin. Your eyes are funny. You move easily. I'm afraid you're terribly attractive. You never said that. No, but I thought it. Stick to the script. Small talk. A lot of small talk with other thoughts going on behind. This garden's really lovely. Are you good at gardens? Not very, but I'm persevering. I'm all right on the more straightforward blooms, like snapdragon and cornflower and tobacco plant. And I can tell a Dorothy Perkins a mile off. That hedge over there is called Cupressus macrocarpa. Do you swear it? It grows terribly quickly. But they do say it gets a little thin underneath in about 20 years. How beastly of them to say that. It's slander. Did you know about valerian smelling of cats? You're showing off again. It's true. I can go one better than that. Lotuses smell of pineapple. Oh, dear. Everything smells of something else. 
It's dreadfully confusing. Never mind, darling. I love you desperately. I knew it the first second I saw you. No, no, no. You're skipping again. Was it in the real world or was it in a dream? Was it just a note in some eternal theme? Was it accidental or accurately planned? How could I hesitate knowing that my fate led me by the hand? You were there. I saw you and my heart stopped beating. You were there. And in that first enchanted meeting, life changed its tune. The stars, the moon came near to me. Dreams that I dreamed like magic seemed to be clear to me, dear to me. Do we have any sense of what influenced this? Obviously, surrealism and everything else that goes along with that were very much part of the art world at this time. Yeah, that's a very interesting question that I hadn't thought about. And in a way, it's sui generis, so it's hard to see where it comes from. I mean, this is the era of what in England was called the group theatre, experimental theatre with music by Benjamin Britten, text by figures such as W.H. Auden, Christopher Isherwood, that went much further down that road at the same time of experimental theatre, self-consciously theatrical theatre, surrealism, and so on. I think Coward would have actively disdained that world, and I don't know whether he saw very much of it. I think there's a European influence. The great German producer, Max Reinhardt, who did huge, large-scale shows, but, you know, using the avant-garde techniques sort of post-Mitterlink, I mean, it may come through through Europe. But then reviews of the 20s and 30s had been as avant-garde as you could possibly wish, and it's only an extension of the scene I described in the last episode of Dance Little Lady, which, you know, had its own lighting effects and dance techniques and used masks and so on. So in a way, I think it's Coward's own creation. And also, Coward had seen No plays, N-O-H, in Japan, which use mime and puppetry. I mean, he laughed at them, but he laughs at things that he often admires secretly. He loved Commedia dell'arte. He knew about techniques which are actually as old as the theatre, whether it's silhouettes on a shadow cloth or on a cyclorama or puppetry or masking. I mean, in a way, these techniques are avant-garde by dint of being as old as time. So he's a magpie where theatre is concerned. And as you say, he'd seen theater all over the world, literally. Yeah, indeed, indeed. He'd seen in China and Japan and especially. So on the personal life front, several things happened during this period. Cole Leslie comes into his life. Yeah. And I find it so interesting that this man who starts off as a servant, I guess, is that fair to say? A valet, yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Or even a cook at the time, yeah. But then he becomes a central partner in Coward's life to a deep degree, although not as a romantic partner. No, I don't believe so. But yes, Cole Leslie, a sort of stage-struck, working-class young man, begins as a chef, becomes a valet, turns into a secretary, and assistant, and then one of his most intimate friends. And his Boswell, in the sense that he wrote the second most complete and still a very fine biography of Coward, and was left half the money and the house in Jamaica, I think. It's a massive shift, and he saw Coward at his best and at his worst, but he was clearly brilliantly clever and taught himself fluent French and followed 
followed Coward to France in the war and so on. I have unfinished business with Cole Leslie in a way because I think he's so fascinating. On the professional front, as you say in the book, in contrast to the new American musicals that were sort of taking over London at this point from Broadway, Cole Porter, Rodgers and Hart, Irving Berlin, for some reason, although Coward is able to write terrific music in a jazz style, he keeps returning to the operetta. Yes, and with diminishing returns. I guess he's trying to emulate the success of Bittersweet, and more and more he's tapping into a desire for nostalgia in the 30s, which tends to afflict any time of economic depression. The past suddenly seems cosy and rose-tinted. You know, that whole genre of Regency romance begins to take off in the 30s and so on. But it all culminates in a work called Operette, which he writes really as a vehicle for the Jewish actress Fritzi Massery, who is fleeing fascist Europe by this time. And of course, it doesn't work. It's about an aged star of Viennese operetta returning to the stage. It wasn't a success for Coward at all. And I think only one song from it survives, The Stately Homes of England, which is very, very funny. But the whole show is sort of so ephemeral as to be barely there. And the timing seems to be very wrong. The show opened in London on the 16th of March, 1938. Yeah. And as you write in the book, with the curtain rising on a frothy haze of Viennese noblemen and ball-gowned ingenues, just the day after cheering crowds had gathered in the Austrian capital to witness Hitler announce the country's annexation. Yes. I mean, you could have the work, dare I say it, been of better quality. That contrast between the cosy history and the frightening present could have worked in its favour. But somehow, given the work in Coward's own admission was rushed and not first rate, the chasm between Coward's onstage world and the terror of the offstage one, I think, was really too severe for it to last. And Massery's English was no good, which didn't really help. But it's interesting that he often seems to be creating work in order to help other people out. Yes. I mean, Gertrude Lawrence was forever in debt to the taxman. She could never sort out her finances. A lot of his work with her, especially tonight at 8.30, was designed to give her income a bit of a boost, which it invariably did. And then the aim to help Fritzi Massery comes from what we might go on to talk about, which is his early formed and entirely genuine, and I think in hindsight deeply admirable, fear of fascism. He has a friend, a writer friend called William Belitho, who died very young, but who was one of the first to tell the world about the darker side of Mussolini, who in the view of a lot of Englishmen had made the trains run on time in Italy. Coward had seen Mussolini speak, and he'd laughed, but he'd also been repelled. His friend Max Reinhardt, whom I mentioned a moment ago, had had to flee Germany owing to being Jewish. And Coward had seen the dangers of fascism and knew, dare one say it, earlier than some of his colleagues in the theatre actually did, and earlier maybe even than the government, what the reality of Hitler was going to be. I admire him for his help, not only for Jewish performers, but for black performers as well. And to go back to Cal and Words and Music, both shows show Coward working in innovative and in significant ways with black performers. The pianist Jack London, who'd also been an Olympic sprinter, I think, who was African-American, he was given work in Cavalcade. And Words and Music was choreographed by Buddy Bradley, making Bradley the first black choreographer to work, I think, on a West End show by a white creative writer. He has a pretty good track record, I think, on helping performers who, in various different ways, might have been outcasts. Don't go away. Oliver and I will be back with more conversation right after this quick break. 
Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factor's No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factor's menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon, with no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And this leads into a major section of Coward's Life and indeed a major section of your book. <laughs> yeah which you have titled Tinsel and Sawdust, A War Film. Yes. Which, again, the way you've structured your book, with each section being a different genre of theatrical production, makes a lot of sense for this period where Coward's life sort of does become like a war movie, and movies themselves become a prominent part of his creation during this period. Yeah, he creates the archetypal war film. He likens in his diary at one point the experience of being, he was on a boat and he gets shot at and the bullets whiz past his head and he expects to hear a movie director's voice say cut. So we're back to this point that I made right at the beginning of our conversation in the previous episode, that Coward, even in the dangers of war, somehow feels he is performing, that he's in a fictional creation. And of course, it allowed me to use transcripts of some important moments during the war that could simply be set out in quasi-screenplay form. And Tinsel and Sawdust, which is a phrase from a play he wrote during the war, Present Laughter, 
actors are nothing but puppets, creatures of tinsel and sawdust. A phrase, incidentally, that Ingmar Bergman picked up for the title of the film. I don't know if it was a conscious illusion. I thought it captured the simultaneous glamour and grubbiness of war, where sort of sawdust and sandbags and bomb damage were prevalent parts of life, but where there was a certain shiny, tinselly glamour to Coward's idea if not the reality, but Coward's idea of what he could contribute, and indeed a shininess and a glint to the value and meaning that war gave to him in the event. Right back to Cavalcade, what is there to strive for, love or keep alive for? Well, if romantic love and British politics hadn't provided an answer to that question, having to fight in a war against the Nazis, where the cost of losing that war would have been unimaginable, this curiously hands to Coward a sense of meaning and possibly even contentment that he admitted he hadn't felt for years. I think this happened to a lot of people in the Second World War. Suddenly, that sort of vacuousness of the interwar lifestyle, which was meaningless and we all party because there's nothing to live for, suddenly you had something to live for. What were the various ways that Coward both publicly and secretly became involved with the war? Ah, how long have you got? I very nearly thought for a while of making this book Coward in World War II because there was simply so much to stuff it all into the proverbial nutshell. It all begins with Coward being hugely against the British government's policy of appeasement, of appeasing Hitler, of giving him the Sudetenland at the Munich conference, regardless of the cost to the Czechs, regardless of the fact that they were doing a deal with someone who was evidently appalling. But it was the official government line for a long time. This went so far that you could not put anti-Hitler sentiment on the West End stage because the Lord Chamberlain would censor it as not being being in line with the parliamentary view. And Coward, greatly to his credit, at a time where not everyone in the theatre agrees with him, and when George Bernard Shaw is acclaiming the Soviet Union, for example, as a land of promise run by a genius, thinks that Hitler is the end and allies himself very quickly with a group of politicians who are out of government and out in the cold, Winston Churchill, Anthony Eden, Robert Boothby, Robert Van Sittart. And what is interesting and most to the point is that the secret services in this country at this time, MI5, MI6, were not undertaking espionage work against Mussolini or against Hitler because the government trusted or almost trusted the German government. And Churchill and that group set up an anti-MI5 secret service, funded by a lot of rich men in the entertainment industry, Noel Coward not least, sending Coward and others as early as 1938 across the Soviet Union, Scandinavia, under the guise of visiting grandee. But secretly, Coward is reporting back mainly to this figure, Robert Van Sittart, who runs the whole outfit, and possibly to another more elusive spymaster called Claude Danzi, as to whether Nazi propaganda is infiltrating into ostensibly neutral countries. And Coward goes to the Soviet Union and very quickly sees through the horrors of Stalinism and is followed everywhere and is bugged and passes documents across borders, locking himself into compartments on trains and so on and so forth. He ends up in what was called the free city of Danzig on the Baltic coast north of Poland, which is where the Second World War really begins to kick off because the Nazis think it should belong to them. And he walks along streets with swastika banners unfurled from the government buildings handing over his secret document and manages with some difficulty to get back to England the day before, I think, Chamberlain, whom he detested for his politics and for appeasing Hitler, broadcasts to 
the nation that we're finally at war with Germany. And he's then recruited by the ex-editor of the Times, Campbell Stewart, to work in Paris secretly for the Ministry of Information. And he's trained in a place called Woburn Abbey, which is more secret than the code-breaking at Bletchley Park at the time. He's sent to France, where he has a final time in Paris dealing with the inadequacies of the French Ministry of Information, but working essentially in propaganda. He's sent to America to see where American public opinion is lying as trying to persuade them to help the Allied forces. He eventually ends up flying back to Paris just before Hitler and the Nazis march in and unfurl the swastika from the Arc de Triomphe. And he gets back to America. He works for William Stevenson, who's one of the biggest spymasters in the Western Hemisphere. He travels through America, spying for Stevenson, meeting figures such as Harry Truman, working out where America stands as far as the war is concerned. And then, of course, passing messages from Churchill to Roosevelt and back again. I mean, he ends up sitting on Roosevelt's bed. It's absolutely astonishing what he's doing while making various ill-advised comments to the press, which start giving him a bad reputation in London. It's also the time of the Roosevelt-Wendell-Wilkie uh, election, which Roosevelt eventually wins. And he's reporting undercover on that as well, and where the election is likely to go and which newspaper magnates are going to support whom and so on. I mean, this barely takes us into 1941. And already he's done more than, you know, enough to fill a short book in itself. Um, but it is real espionage. It is spying in neutral countries. The consequences would have been severe. And the papers had been hidden for a long time. And I was able to look at diaries and reports in the National Archives and so on that had not been seen and just pieced together all of this, what he was doing from 38 to 41 as far as espionage was concerned. It's so interesting because, of course, and that's possibly the genius of choosing him to do this, is he seems like the least likely suspect to be involved in espionage. Yeah, exactly. It's another mask for him to wear. There's a great link between homosexuality and espionage in the two wars, partly because if this isn't too neat a parallel, gay men are used to a certain form of clandestine subterfuge in their life. But it's interesting how Noel Coward, who is born in the wrong side of the tracks, who is not aristocratic in any sense, ends up being a spy because it's the ultimate form of belonging to one country over another. It's an amazing form of acceptance for a, a gay man from Teddington, while also being simultaneously the ultimate act of outsiderness, which is what Noel Coward always is. So it suits him more than you might think, even though he does, it has to be said, some foolish things and can't resist telling everybody that he's spying for the most famous spy master of the Western Hemisphere and so on. And some of it, while I do think it comes from a very genuine patriotism and anti-Nazi sentiment, it also comes from the hope that he might possibly get a knighthood out of Churchill at the end of it. And we can't discount residual guilt from the First World War, I think. I think this is a means of offering to the Second War what he was not able to give to the first. And of course, he wasn't allowed to talk about this publicly. It didn't stop him doing it. You know, he would tell everybody, you know, have you heard of this man, William Stevenson and so on? But of course it did. The work for Van Sittart, the anti-appeasement spying, never came out in his lifetime. He never spoke about that publicly. And that created a problem because what he was able to say caused him to come into a lot of criticism from the press. From the press and eventually from the government, because Churchill had never 
never entirely taken him seriously and had said to him that the best thing to do would be to go and sing to the troops while the guns are firing. But this rather awful and well-known homophobe and closet homosexual, I now gather, called Hugh Dalton, who worked in the government, eventually blocks Coward from doing any espionage work. And I found in Dalton's diaries the entry saying that, you know, well, of course, Coward was a Nancy. It is, in the end, a suspicion of his fame, a sense that, you know, a playwright shouldn't be getting involved in the highest levels of government, but also deep homophobia that puts an end to Coward's spying work, really. And of course, throughout all of this, his career and his personal life are continuing on. Yes. He writes several of his most famous plays during this period, Present Laughter, Blythe Spirit, both certainly at the top of the list of plays that get revived over and over again and have lived on. Completely. And Blythe Spirit outruns the war and is a play, a comedy about death and ghosts and domestic destruction put on in the middle of a London crushed by the Blitz. Very daring, but it paid off. I mean, Coward's own house was bombed. And a lot of this spying work he'd done at his own expense without declaring his foreign currency, which it was his legal requirement to do. And part of this is Jack Wilson forgetting to do it and mucking things up with his American bank account. And he ends up in the dock at the Old Bay in London, two wartime trials that he has to get through, and he escapes with a fine. And he does the war films, and he tours the world as a performer. So there's more activity in the war than it seems almost humanly possible for one man to achieve. And he begins a relationship with Michael Redgrave. Yeah. Who will later become the father of Lynn Redgrave and Vanessa Redgrave. And Corin, yes, yeah. Share with us just a little bit about that. Well, it's very hard to chart this relationship. I think sexually it was quite brief. And it, it was conducted at the Savoy where Coward was living and then was cut short by Redgrave going into the Navy, which was always Coward's great attraction in young men. And Redgrave was intellectual and left wing and quite highbrow. He'd been in T.S. Eliot plays and so on before beginning a career in movies. But somehow it worked. And although it was short-lived, it seems to have been quite passionate. I still want to go and look at Michael Redgrave's diaries, which are held at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, but which haven't been open or available in the last couple of years. And that might shed more light. I mean, they stayed friends their whole life. But the really extraordinary thing, and we're back to my point about the dignity of wives in these bisexual love triangles, is that Michael Redgrave was married to the actress Rachel Kempson. And when Redgrave was called up and went to sea and went to the war, he spent his last night of his leave, not with his wife Rachel, but with Noel Coward. And what is interesting is that although that upset Rachel Kempson very much, she and Coward actually had a rather loving relationship. And she said that she loved him and she worked with him and toured in his plays during the war. So we're back to these curious triangles that mingle platonic love and sexual passion and then calm themselves onto a sort of lighter plane. And on top of all that, Noel is the producer, the writer, the star, the composer of the score, and the co-director of what was called at the time the best war film ever made. Yeah, in which we serve. I'm often asked what Coward was most proud of in his career, what he thought was his most important achievement, at least artistically. And I think more than any of the great comedies he might have nominated in which we serve, which he thought was his greatest contribution, the most important thing he ever did. I mean, I'm sure people have seen it. It's the sort of archetypal, semi-fictionalized war movie. It sets up the pattern for all the war movies that were to come. It's a thinly veiled account of the sinking of His Majesty's ship Crete 
which was commanded by Louis Mountbatten, the naval commander who went on to be the Viceroy of India and was linked to the royal family and so on. And he was a very close friend of Coward. Very close friend of Coward, of whom rather dark details are still emerging that I don't believe Coward had anything to do with. And Coward plays the Mountbatten naval figure rather more like Noel Coward than as Louis Mountbatten, sort of dealing with the sinking of the ship with stiff British upper lips and so on. It rather like Cavalcade. It is not simply a tub-thumpingly patriotic work of art. It's a mosaic of domestic miniature showing the wives that were left behind. It very daringly shows a British defeat in order to raise British morale, which is an interesting conundrum. It had huge resonance. It's deeply moving still. It had visual spectacle and was very, very difficult to make and involved sort of real planes being used and the construction of the warship and films shot in filthy tanks of freezing water to recreate the Mediterranean and Mountbatten thought that the conditions in the real sinking of HMS Crete were rather easier than the ones that all the actors, among them Richard Attenborough, John Mills, Coward himself, had to put up with. And indeed, a studio engineer was killed in the making of In Which We Serve when he took the lid off a tin of gunpowder that was still hot and it exploded in his face. But it was a triumph and nearly led to Coward's being knighted, were it not for those trials owing to the American currency. And how is that movie in which we served perceived today? Well, it's a sort of Christmas classic here in England. I don't know if it is in America. No, it hasn't entered the culture here in that way. I didn't think so. It certainly requires you as a viewer in 2023 to place it back within its time if you are to accept scenes such as the cheering of the death of German sailors, for example. But it absolutely moves still on a human level on its focus on, as I say, the death of the women and the children, on the way it's able to combine this epic spectacle with this domestic miniature of individuals that make up a war. That's what I find moving about it. And it does it with great subtlety and restraint. For example, a man on board the ship is informed of the death of his wife, and he responds simply by saying, oh yes, yes I see, that's it. A man who has survived the sinking of the ship sends news of his survival to his anxious family, merely in two words, okay, love. And I think that amazing economy and subtlety, and Coward does all of that relief and wanting to reassure in two words. So it's a work of economy and subtlety. And I have one more example, and it's very hard to describe why I think this is so good. It's a parting scene between a sailor going to war who might be killed and his wife who is going back home on her own. And instead of professing undying love or saying all the important things that need to be said, she says to him, I won't forget to get the lawnmower mended. And it's hard to convey why I think that line is genius. But I think it is genius in that it conveys so much. It conveys a woman's understanding of a man. It contains a man's priorities. It contains reassurance. And it contains everything they need to tell one another about how much they love one another and how scared they are and all their hopes and fears. And he does it with a line about a lawnmower. And in so doing, I guess he would argue, captures something about the British character of restraint. Very few playwrights, I think, would have included, I shan't forget to get the lawnmower amended. But that is the difference somehow between a good film and a great film, and an understanding of human nature somehow. And as with so much of Coward's work, it's about what the characters don't say. Indeed, exactly. 
And if that wasn't enough, there's then sort of a double whammy of a second major film, Brief Encounter. Yes. And film has not particularly been Coward's metier up to this point. No, all his early screen tests apparently showed that he couldn't act. But of course, he's joined forces now with the young director, David Lean, who becomes a legendary figure and concedes all the support Coward gave him. Producers, he has a troupe of wonderful actors. Celia Johnson is in, in which we serve and in Brief Encounter. So between them, they make of Brief Encounter one of those films that's become immortal and which I didn't see till I was quite some way through the project. I saw it at the sort of right time in the writing and I was blown away by it. I thought, it was just a masterpiece and deeply moving and upsetting and passionate and has that same technique of a couple falling in love through a discussion of ostensible trivia. And although it's released after the war, it is written and produced during the war. Yes, and its whole atmosphere, I mean, it's shot in black and white, it's lighting, it's shadows, speak of war-torn England somehow. And of all those affairs that happened behind the blackout curtains, and of all the meaning that the war gave to women who suddenly were taken away from the kitchen sink and put in the driver's seats of ambulances or the code-breaking of Bletchley Park or whatever, and it captures the way that was taken away again and how everything clammed up in 1945, and how all these brilliant women who had had affairs or had worked in high levels of war were put back in front of the sink, and the men were put back in charge, and they were returned to their sort of dreary life of suburbia and padded curtains and family and child rearing. And it catches all of that in the way it shows a suburban woman having an affair that is doomed to impermanence, and she has to go back to her husband, who doesn't understand what's happened. It's Coward catching a cusp again. He's very good at these sort of seismic notions of social change, both progressive and regressive. What happens at the end of the war is that a copy of what was called the Sonderfundungsliste was discovered, which is the hit list of everyone who was going to be murdered or executed come the Nazi invasion of Britain, had it happened. And Coward was on this list, which shows the levels to which he was working, that the Nazis believed him to be in a secret location somewhere. And also on this list was Rebecca West. And when it became known that they were both going to be up against the war, in this auspicious company, Virginia Woolf, Churchill, so on. Rebecca West sent Coward a telegram, and the telegram said, my dear, the people we should have been seen dead with. And I love that because it is very funny, but it puts into practice Coward's philosophy, which may have been Rebecca West's as well, that laughing in the face of the unimaginable and the frightening and the apocalyptic is really the best weapon. And I love that quip as an example of putting Coward's entire flippant, serious philosophy into practice. Please join Oliver and I on the next episode of Broadway Nation, when we will follow Noel Coward into the 1950s. Don't let's be beastly to the Germans, when our victory is ultimately won. It was just those nasty Nazis who persuaded them to fight. And their Beethoven and Bach are really far worse than their bite. Let's be meek to them and turn the other cheek to them and try to bring out their latent sense of fun. Let's give them full air parity and treat the rats with charity. But don't let's be beastly to the Hun. Now here's the information about how you too can become a patron of Broadway Nation. 
A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for Broadway Nation. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech that's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Don't let's be beastly to the Germans, for you can't deprive a gangster of his gun. Though they've been a little naughty to the Czechs and Poles and Dutch, I don't suppose those countries really minded very much. Let's be free with them and share the BBC with them. We mustn't prevent them basking in the sun. Let's soften their defeat again and build their blasted fleet again. But don't let's be beastly to the Hun. Don't let's be beastly to the Germans when the age of peace and plenty has begun. We must send them steel and oil and coal and everything they need. For their peaceable intentions can be always guaranteed. Let's employ with them a sort of strength through joy with them. They're better than us at honest manly fun. Let's let them feel us well again and bum us all to hell again. But don't let's be beastly to the Hun. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.